This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Again, so in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord, not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality in him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you would give it to us, and we ask that you would plant it deeply inside of our hearts, Lord. Hallelujah. That you allow it to take root inside of our heart, root inside of our soul, and that you would allow it to blossom and bear much fruit. We give you all the honor and, and all the glory in Jesus' name. Church says, amen. You may be seated. So let me, let me start right in. Let me start by saying this. It is hard to read scripture in the covenant language of the kingdom when you've been taught it in the idolatrous language of culture. It's hard. It's hard. The past few weeks, we've, we've been preaching through some of the most abused text in Scripture. Some of the most abused text. Texts that have been pulled out of context and used to justify so much sin. Sin through the abuse of authority. And what is what it's been doing is, is creating a culture of people that have rejected authority altogether. And that's because what has been modeled, and I'm going to say specifically by the church, what's been modeled by the church, who through her union with Christ, it says Jesus Christ is the very image of God, and the church is unified with Christ, so, so, so we become the image of, 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 of God. So when people are looking to be able to see God, they want to see who he is, we used to be able to point to the church, and they see God. But because of what has been modeled specifically by the church, who's through her union with Christ, is the image of God, what the church has modeled in so many ways has been ungodly. Yes, yes. And this is important why, why so many people have rejected God himself as the ultimate authority. 
people have taken texts like this and, and, and taken them out of context. A couple of weeks ago, we covered husbands and wives, and you see how, how people have took that and used it to, to, to mean male chauvinists. We covered texts about parents and, and children, and if you missed last week when Pastor Aaron talked about parents and children, Man, I wasn't inside here. I was, I was hanging out with the kids, but I had an opportunity to listen to it. As a matter of fact, my, my, my daughter was sending text messages to us like, yeah, I need to hear this. So we set a rule like she doesn't come inside when those type of texts are being preached. So, <laughs> Man, but, but, but our parents have taken... And abuse these taxes and use it as, as ways to, to treat children as lesser image bearers. How husband has taken texts like these and used it to treat wives as lesser image bearers. And the reason why these things has happened is because men who read these verses through the lenses of their idols and hear them through the language of their idols. Parents that read these verses through the lenses of their idols and hear them through the language of their idols and and now because the people in the position of power, top of the pyramid, has communicated these verses through the language of their idols to those on the bottom of the pyramid, those on the bottom started to view those verses as oppressive. This morning is no different. This morning is no different. We we're confronted with another controversial text that is uneasy to hear. So I just so I want to walk through this and and I just want to carry you guys along with me, right? I'm going to trek and I'm gonna, and I'm going to go the long route, but I want you guys to 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 to, to walk with me because I'm going somewhere. You see, for me, right? Before coming to Christianity, I was, I was heavily involved in, in, in Islam and Rastafarianism and, and, and what's known as the, the black conscious community. And what that is, is a, a group of people who, for the most part, has given up on Christianity because Christianity itself has been deemed oppressive to us as a people. And largely because of its involvement in things like slavery and its silence during the civil rights movement and other atrocities. Now, the reason why I want to start here and, 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 and share this, this story is because I encountered this verse way before I became a Christian some 20 plus years ago. The enemy used that encounter to... Help keep me away from Christianity by showing me how some wicked men in positions of power, top of the pyramid, had communicated this verse through the language of their idols to those at the bottom of the pyramid. You see, in the, in the ESV, it's, it's, it says bond servant right here, right? But in like NIV and other verses, they don't try to be so nice and water it down. They straight up say slave. And I read this verse, and a while back, it w- I was shown a Bible that was created just for slaves. And it was, it was a Bible. They took so many books out of it. Like, the Old Testament had just 14 books inside of it. 
The Bible started with creation and it goes to Joseph getting sold into slavery and how good it was for him. And it it, it skips over Israelites being freed out of slavery. As a matter of fact, there was heavy redactions on anything that referred to freedom. The whole book of Revelations was left out, so there was no, no, no kingdom come, no, no, no new world to look towards, nothing to look, no hope to look forward to. And themes of submission was highlighted in verses like the one we're looking at today was major. So I wrestled. I wrestled because I struggled to not see this text to be real through the language of the transatlantic slave trade. Like I wrestled with reading this text without picturing a whip in the scarred back of an ancestor. I wrestled because of the language in which I heard this text and, 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 and texts like it. And, and because of that language in which I was hearing it, I wanted nothing to do with Christianity. But God. But God. Mightier than any attempt at man to manipulate his word. But God, mighty to go inside and say, you tried to do this, but this is what I'm doing. You can't manipulate my spirit. But God. So so I'm here again talking about this text and deconstructing and reconstructing so that we can hear this text through the covenant language of the scriptures. So I want to walk us through this and we're going somewhere. Follow me. I want to walk us through this. First thing I want to say is this. God intentionally and strategically places us in the cultural times and places that we live. This is not happenstance. It's intentional. It's him walking out his plans. It's, it, God is intentionally raising up a gospel witness amidst the culture of slavery that was already present when Paul would write this. It was, the institution of slavery was, it was everywhere. It wasn't just there in Ephesus. It was something that was all over the place in in many different cultures. It was everywhere, largely as a workforce. Follow me. Largely as a workforce. So this is the culture that, that Paul finds himself in, what God says, preach the gospel to, and raises him up. With that in mind, We are sent into the culture, but we are not of the culture. This is important. In John 17, 14 through 18, Jesus is praying, and he's praying for the church. He's praying for them. He says that they're in this world. They're in it, but they're not of it. So when he says of it, you're talking about of it means you're not formed by it. You're in it, but you're not formed by it. So Paul's view on slavery wasn't formed by the cultural view of the time, but instead it was formed by the covenant reality of the kingdom. With that in mind, what I want to do is I want to explain the 
contextual, cultural reality of slaves and masters in Paul's time, right? Let's go there. Let's meet Paul there. You see, it was very different from what happened in the West with the transatlantic slave trade. Very different. And even as I point out the differences, I have zero burden to attempt to rescue the Bible and make it seem like there were not elements that were equally as brutal as what happened in the West. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like, man, I gotta, why would Paul, this just, it's bad. I don't feel the burden to try to rescue the Bible, but instead, let me explain what was happening here. You see, some were very bad. There was, there was rape, people did whatever they wanted. Some was very bad. And, and, and most of it was just like in the West where it was primarily work-related. Now, I want you to understand this term, bond servant. This term, bond servant, in Paul's time was much broader than what happened in the West. It was more to it than that. Not less than more. It was more to it than that. So first, what I want you to know is that it wasn't race-based. It wasn't like, well, because you're this race, you become this. You're this race, you become that. Now, what happened in Egypt with the Hebrews was race-based. It was an exception. But that reality was a wicked ruler rose up and out of fear leveraged them for work. Follow me. So people that was slaves, a lot of them were prisoners of war. People went to war, and they, they came back with the spoils of the war, and they had these prisoners, and they became part of the workforce who were slaves. Or there were people that were slaves that were sentenced to being slaves for crimes, and then even in those circumstances, most of the time, it was for periods of time. A lot of slaves lived normal lives and were paid the going wage. Like, slave was a legitimate job title. Like, I'll be a bond servant for this particular amount of money. But they weren't allowed to quit or exchange employers. And then even at that, most of the time, when someone chose to go into that line of, of, of work, the average was seven to ten years person could become a slave for a set period of time in order to work off debts because they didn't have stuff like bankruptcy. Nah, you owe me money. So what they would do is work that money off by, okay, so I'm going to be a slave for X amount of years to work off these debts. So there was people that voluntarily went to it. You even had slaves that owned other slaves. They were like, man, my master has so much work, I need to get my own self a slave. You have slaves who were doctors, professors, administrators, and, and civil servants, right? This is the broader context, right? But here, here's what Andrew T. Lincoln says regarding these times. He says this, No one in ancient times could conceive an economic or labor structure without it. 
While there were brutal forms of slavery, the concept indentured labor in which the laborer was not free to market his skills to other employers was considered a given. It was well accepted. Now, here in Ephesus, a massive portion of the Ephesian population identified as slave or bond servant. A massive amount of them. Like at least one-third of them identified as slave or bond servant, and that was both Jews and Gentiles. And most were treated like a part of the family living with the master. They were part of the household. So this was a common household code. So Paul is he's going through this, this time right here, and he's talking about household codes. He's talking about husbands and wife, parents and children, masters and slaves, because all of this was all part of the same household. So this is the cultural context Paul finds himself preaching the gospel in and and entire households will come to Christ, including the servants. So this is the cultural atmosphere that he finds us in, God strategically places us in, and, and, and how he functions in this particular cultural atmosphere is as salt and light. Salt and light. This is important because God calls us to functionally live into our identity of salt and light amidst the cultures of our time. Yeah, because we can talk about being salt and light without functionally living into it. In Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus, he calls his disciples salt and light. He didn't say, you can work hard to become this. One day you will be it. He says, this is what you are. This is your identity. Salt and light. When he intentionally and strategically places us in the times and cultures that we live, he's literally salting the culture with us. He's literally shining light on the culture through us. as we functionally live into that identity. There are times when we shine the light of the gospel, highlighting what's good in all of life because that good comes from God. We want people to see God speaking through the present everyday things. So you're highlighting these good, some good that's oftentimes overlooked, but this is what light does. And while you're highlighting the good, there are times where you need to shine light on what's bad. Because when you shine light on what's bad, you remind the culture how broken it is because it has strayed away from God. That's what light does. Exposing the the bad while highlighting the good. And this happens on from a private level to a public level, from an individual level to a social level. This is all of life. There are times when when, when you sort the culture with the gospel, preserving what's good. Preserving what's good. I was talking to somebody during break and second service, and he was, he was just reminding me, like, yo, the way it preserves what's good is kills what's bad. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's what's up. I'm going to use it. Uh-huh. 
serving and bringing the flavor of Christ, the flavor of the gospel into all of life, every single aspect of culture. This is what Paul is doing as he confronts the idolatrous pyramid lens of culture with the covenantal kingdom lens of the gospel. So, So if we're going to Be salt and light, seasoning with the gospel and exposing the broken realities of culture that has rejected God. We have to also be able to point towards a tangible reality of what it looks like when culture is submitted to God. You can't just say, oh, that's bad, that's bad, that's bad. You rejected God and don't have a what's good to point towards. What does it look like then when you submit it to God, when groups of people come together, submit it to God? What does it look like? There has to be a witness. God sets the church as a city on a hill to display the culture of his kingdom, contrasting the culture of this world. In order to do that, there has to be tons of intentionality, tons of pastoring through things. In order for that to happen, in Paul's context and in ours, he has to address the realities of the kingdom of God regarding diversity in a way that doesn't remain surface level. And in doing so, there has to be a dissolving of what was formed by culture so that these realities can be formed by the kingdom. He has to be real and address questions like, well, if the master is a part of the city of God and the slave is a part of the city of God, what does it look like for them to live as one and reflect the culture of the kingdom of God together? This has to be addressed. And this question gets addressed over and over and over again throughout Scripture. The institution of slavery as a workforce was so ingrained in culture that the church would wrestle with scriptures addressing this question all the way into the transatlantic slave trade where the church participated in and helped perpetuate the most brutal form of it herself. They would continue to wrestle they would continue to address it, and, and now you've seen the most ungodly form of it because, man, it's been whittled down to just this, and they have to wrestle with addresses like, well, it says that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. It, it says all Christians are slaves of Christ. It says Christ himself came as a servant. As a matter of fact, there's an entire book as Paul writes a letter to Philemon addressing this, and the whole letter is just about that. His slave, Winsomus, was like, yo, I'm out. And he comes to Paul, and it's crazy because Winsomus knows Paul, and Philemon knows Paul. He's both of their pastor. Uh And he writes a letter back addressing this thing. And in 15 through 16, he says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. 
that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me. But how much more to you? Both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is what he says addressing this. So the church has to wrestle with this thing all the way through. Like, man, we got slavery going on. A lot of us is checking in for it and stuff. But there's no way for the institution of slavery to continue and thrive amongst the Christians with these addresses. So eventually there becomes conflict in the body. Sometimes conflict in the body is good. Sometimes it's good for cats to go to blows over what's really, really true. So the cast that's just tripping over the false stuff can get exposed and pushed out. This has to happen. Some believers wanted it to stay for economic reasons. And some believers really believed the gospel had both individual and social implications. And this was a gospel concern. So regardless if the slave had individual salvation or not, the immoral social reality of slavery had to be abolished. And it was. It was. And this wasn't the first time that the gospel affected the economic system so, so, so bad. Like we see it inside scripture when Paul goes to, to, to Ephesus the first time and acts and he preaches the gospel and it turns the whole economic system upside down when people decided to turn from their idols. That's in scripture. Yeah. <laughs> So there's an author that says this thing. I'm not going to try to say his name, but I can't pronounce it. But I won't butcher it. But this is what he says. This kind of teaching so transforms the master-servant relationship that while it is still there in form, the servant is still to work for his employer. Slavery has been abolished, even if its outer institutional shell remains. Interesting. So slavery ends and the employer-employee relationship rises but feels very much like slavery. That's why employee and employee relationships now oftentimes feels like slavery because it sort of just fills this outer institutional shell of slavery. This is why so many employees now only view work as a necessary evil. Going to work feels more like drudgery than freedom to them. I have to do this. They feel more like a paid slave at the bottom of the pyramid than a brother who's an equal image bearer with the master, the manager, the employer at the top of the pyramid. So they begrudgingly go in only thinking about the bills. Yes. Yes. Oh, you have employers, managers, supervisors, etc., that feel because of their title and position, they're more important than the people they manage. They unconsciously and even sometimes consciously treat them like they are lesser human beings, lesser image bearers. Yeah. Like Like, their worth is tied up in the last time they met quota. 
Like they're, like they're only as good as the last sale they made or how quickly you get us to the goal. Like the, the image bearers they lead are nothing more than warm bodies easily replaced. And some people find themselves somewhere in the middle, caught between both of these examples. I'm a little bit like this and I'm a little bit like that because I manage people and I got people that's over me and, and, and things roll downhill. So many, for so many, this is their experience of work. And it's so distorted from the creation kingdom reality of work that was given before the fall. And we have to ask the question, why, and listen to the Spirit of God as he speaks to us with these texts today. Here's the reality of it. Even though the workforce institution of slavery has fallen, the idols of the heart that created it remains. So you have the idol of destination and you have the idol of means. The idol of destination is where you want to go to, where you want to get to, and the idols of means is the way you're going to get there. And two of the most massive idols of destination and culture are power and control. And that finished work either displays that power, control, or gets you closer to it. You got to hurry up. So the idol of means to complete the work and move the culture closer to the idols of power and control for that time was slavery. Slavery falls, but the idol of power and control remains. And the modern day system of work becomes the idol of means to get us to the idols of power and control. Ah, but there's a bigger thing going on here. Sometimes when we preach through small sections, you can sort of forget the house that it's in. Remember at the beginning, we talked about showing rooms inside of a house. In chapter 3, Paul tells us how the Lord uses the church to speak to the spiritual rulers and authorities. Spiritual rulers that have created these cultural systems. Systems that reject those who don't contribute to the system efficiently enough. It even impacts how it feels for many who work at home raising kids. Culture often treats them like, like they're not as important as as, as, as Bob, you don't contribute to the system the way Bob does, who works nine to five. All you do is stay home raising these image bearers, and, and they don't comp- contribute to the system neither. Right. Come on, man. Wow. So you start comparing yourself and your self-worth to, to those who contribute to the system in ways that the system says is more tangible. Right. Feeling like you're missing out. You're not... You're not Fulfilling yourself, you have a purpose. Or culture may even give a pass if you're married to someone who makes up for your lack and contributes to the system enough for two or more people. This is the exact same reason why those that are poor and homeless are treated with contempt. 
Like, 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 like they're just sand in the gears of the system that needs to be cleared out. You don't contribute, you just slow us down. And most of the time they start believing this lie that, that says I have nothing to offer. It's only you who have something to offer to me. Wow. I, don't, I don't know where I fit in. I don't fit into the system. Let me find a comfortable place in the margins behind a building somewhere. The thing here is the spirit behind the idols of power and control that dictated the relationship between master and servant then or the same spirits behind the idols of power and control now that dictate the relationship between the employee and the employer now. So most employee-employer relationships are awkward because they're formed by the idols of culture, not the kingdom. important to know that Paul follows this very conversation regarding husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves, employee, employer, with a discussion about spiritual warfare. Pastor Aaron is going to preach on that next week. But he follows this and he continues it in. See, there is a way that you work that wages war against the spirit of this age and culture that says you are not of this world. You are not of this culture systems, but you are of the kingdom of God. And the way that you work is waging war. One that displays the covenant culture of the kingdom where we submit one to another. This is what Paul does. He's like, let me show you. So let me look again at Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, so we could look at how it speaks to us living into this. He says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service or people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality. Here's what he sets up for employees. He says, serve with reverence to Christ as your king. Serve with reverence to Christ as your king. The way that you work, the way that you engage your everyday work, the things that you do, the way how you do it, knowing that you're in the presence of the king all the time, and you do it with reverence to that reality. He is right here as I work on this assembly line. He is right here as I clean up this garbage. He is right here, and the way that I work is in a way that said I reverence the God whose presence I am in all the time. This cuts through culture. Serve with a sincere heart. Like, actually care about the work that you do. It's not just a necessary evil. Actually care about it. Serve Christ in your service to others. The person 
You are serving the person on the other end of that, that finished product. The person that receives on the other end, that person is created in the image and likeness of your king. So you serve them as you're serving the God in whose image they are created. It shapes how you do your work and why you care so much. Serve as a way to worship God, not money. Let me say that again. Serve as a way to worship God, not money. You get to get money, but it's not the end result. Hallelujah. You get to worship the God of all existence with how you serve, and you trust him with the increase. You trust him with what he gives because everything that he gives is his anyhow. So you trust him with the blessings. Serve with an audience of one in mind. Know that when you're overlooked, when you're unnoticed by man, you're never overlooked. You're never unnoticed by God. And he controls the hearts of kings. He's the one that opens up doors and closes them. He's the one that says, listen, I want you to stay right here because there's something about you being right here, how it affects my plan. So I'm keeping you here. Serve with him in mind. Audience of one. You're never overlooked by him, and he is in complete control. There's nothing that he misses. But it says this, employees, don't serve attempting to merely look good, be good. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't serve trying to, to look good and, and presenting this, this shallow and false reality. Instead, serve from the spirit of God, reflecting the goodness of who he is inside of your work, not trying to look good. Because the reality of it is that when you're doing that, don't serve as a people pleaser, but to please the Lord. Don't serve because you're trying to hopefully they'll notice me. Hopefully they'll see me. And I do this because I want to be a people pleaser. And I do that because I want to be a people pleaser. You'll never please them. Instead, what you end up doing is making them idols to worship. Instead of pleasing the God of all creation who says, work like this to my glory. Not so that they can see you. Ah, these things cut through all the lines of cultural idolatry. And he talks to employers. He says this, serve the way you expect employees to serve. Everything that he just said to the employees, everything that he just said to the work, he said, that all applies to you. Serve just the way that I said to them. It all applies to you. He says, serve your employees by seeing them as people to submit to in covenant relationship. Not just those people that are under me, but those people that I am in relationship with and how I serve and how I work. He says, serve in a way that deeply cares about your employees and the work that you do together. Not like I really care about the bottom line, I really care about the work that we do, but I skip over the people that I do it with that does most of the work for me. Uh-huh. But you 
serve in relationship together with them, deeply caring about them and the work that you guys do together. Serve in a way that reflects God's goodness, not merely looking good to move up the ladder. Ah, reflect who he is as a good God. And, 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 and then the people want to move you up the ladder. They move you up the ladder because they see qualities of Jesus inside of you. And it stands out. And they want to elevate that. But don't just serve in a way so that you look good when this person is coming down to visit. So you clean up and you do all these type of things. But you don't care about it when the big boss ain't coming around. His Serve your employees as a way of serving God. Again, remember the image of whom your king is presented in the body of your employees. So how you work with them is a way of serving your God who intentionally created them in his image as a constant reminder that he's right there. Ah, all these things cut through all those. Pick what? what he does here though then he says this stop threatening them employers and I'm saying all those in positions of authority you got people on you don't lead from pride don't leave from pride. Stop threatening them. He gives an open rebuke. This letter is being read to a group of people, and they are both employees and employers, slaves and masters inside of this group, and he makes an open rebuke to, to the people in a position of authority. Don't leave from your, your pride. Stop threatening. Because the moment you, you lead like this, you walk in the sinful pride that culture ties to your position. Yes. What you do is you make yourself a higher image bearer and them a lesser image bearer. You remove yourself from the covenant, covenant circle and you place yourself at the top of the pyramid. And the Lord says, not so. Not so. There is no partiality inside of me. Remember, like, I'm both of y'all's bosses. And there is no partiality. He's the boss of both you and him. And he is in that covenant relationship with you. It's not even just y'all two in it by yourself. It's you, him, and the Lord. You, your employees, and the Lord. And all of y'all together working inside his covenant reality. Her husband and wife and the Lord. Parent and children and the Lord. Employer and employee and the Lord. Hmm. Well, I had this problem first service and I didn't fix it in between service. I have no transition into communion, so I'm just going to turn and go to communion, <laughs> all right? <laughs> Let me say this. <laughs> As you guys prep for communion, remember this. Remember this. Like, this right here, this represents the body of our Lord, the bread. It represents his body that was given for us. 
the Jews, represents his blood that flows for us. And as you come to this table today, remember this. Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to be a master. He also demonstrated what it looks like to be a servant. Jesus demonstrated what it looks like to be the employer. He also demonstrated what it looks like to be the employee. And then he gives his spirit to us so that we will continue to walk in his example. Like, just trust his spirit. He gives it to us and he places it inside of us. The same spirit that he used to walk inside of these examples so that we have cues on what it looks like. When we take communion, we, we acknowledge this union. We acknowledge that we are joined together with him by partaking in the fruit of his labor. By partaking in the fruit of his work. Labor and work that we could never do. And he joins us to partake in, just like a good boss would do. As you come to the table this morning, I want you to contemplate all the different hands throughout time that has reached for this communion cup, for different walks of life, different realities. I want you to contemplate, do I, do I work Submit it to you with you as my prize? Do I work as one that knows that I stand in your presence all day long? Do I lead my people knowing that I'm being led by you when there is no partiality? Do people see the culture of the kingdom of God when I, as an employee or employer, work to the glory of God or do they see something ungodly? And this is for every facet of life where any form of working is applied in and outside of the home. Listen, the tables are open. Let's pray together. Let's worship together. If you need prayer, we'll be over here. We'll be ready to pray with you. The tables are open. Let's worship. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.